What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What to Know podcast show, and we are live from Austin, Texas at Interactive, South by Southwest Interactive. It's a little early in the morning, which normally uh, we don't do, but Pete Blackshaw, who is kind enough to join me, um, Pete is the Global Head of Innovation and Service Models at Nestle. Welcome, Pete. Thank you for inviting me. So we have a lot to cover today. Uh, and, and the normal arc that I like to cover is a little bit about where were you, you know, what are you doing now? And we could probably spend the entire podcast on either of those two. Um, you started your career, you spent time at P&G, so classically trained, you know, uh, marketer. Um, I had forgotten about the fact that You'd actually, you were the CMO of NM Insight, which was a joint venture between Nielsen and McKinsey. Uh, love to talk a little bit about that. You founded WOMA, the Word of Mouth Marketing Association, among many other things. And I also forgot you uh, founded Planet Feedback, which was one of the first um, consumer feedback portals on the web, just a demonstration early days to this thing called customer service that we're going to talk a lot about today. So why don't we start about your history? Yeah. You know, let's give us the early years and how that's led us to where you are today. Well, I'll take it back to the really early, early roots. I mean, I've always loved advertising and marketing. My dad was in the, uh, was kind of an original madman, And so I grew up on ad jingles and I really um, came to appreciate the emotional side of, of branding. And so, and I, and I had a business knack at, at age 14. I started my first uh, produce business. I was like the youngest, one of the youngest avocado growers in Southern California. Why am I not surprised by this? I know, I know. No, we had four gigantic avocado trees and, I, um, you know, for a kid that age, I made a lot of money. So I kind of caught the bug early. And when I was at college at UC Santa Cruz, I have the distinction and I'm volunteering this now because someone listening may actually try to expose me, but I co-developed the logo for our iconoclastic mascot, the banana slug, which was a bit of an anti-mascot mascot. The movie, as many of you know, the, the logo was ultimately featured in Pulp Fiction. About a third of Pulp Fiction has John Travolta wearing the, the T-shirt. But that paid my way through college and also gave me a really good feel for the importance of brand essence and branding because we were very disciplined in almost an intuitive way about making sure that this equity of the slug logo, which was the slug reading Play-Doh, um, and, you know, wearing glasses, it was very much an anti-mascot mascot, but it stood for something. It had its own brand purpose, if you will. Have you ever actually seen a banana slug, by the way? Oh, they share a sim- I, I- the slugs share a symbiotic relationship with the California Redwoods. So anybody from California listening to they, me they are crazy. would be very offended. And yeah, they're, they're iconic. They're all like, over. Yeah. I know they're a little bit. First time you see them, they're grotesque, but you realize they're your neighbors. Um, but, but, you know, I, you know. And it was funny, like when I got into Harvard Business School, you know, I'm sure they were thinking if you can sell the banana slug, you can probably sell the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, but the other part of marketing that, you know, as I've looked back on my career and asked myself, OK, where did I um, where did some of this come from? Yes, I worked at PNG. Yes, I went to business school, but I actually worked in the California legislature for five years and I worked for an incredibly dynamic Latino elected official. who's was trying to become the first um, Hispanic governor. And it was one of the most incredible mentor relationships. His name was Art Torres, and I was his press secretary and later his policy aide. And the thing about working in state government is that you have very little money. 
you have very short time windows. You're carrying products called pieces of legislation. You have to build coalitions. You have to get your product through the Department of Finance. You have to do a lot of guerrilla marketing. You've got a press corps that pretty much thinks you're full of it. Half the time when you're pitching stuff, you have to really think on the fly about creative hooks. And I picked up a lot of really good marketing skills. And sometimes when I'm coming up with creative ideas, I do find myself wearing that press secretary hat and, um, and you know, the, the, the politician I work for is still a very good friend. You know, he was quite, um, you know, uh, creative himself in terms of different angles of storytelling. And that's really what it is. It's like you're trying to capture the hearts and minds. And California is a wonderful place to learn it because the issues, incredibly diverse state, you know, issues that matter, um, very purpose driven and the like. So that that I think gave me a big competitive edge and probably led to some of my more non-traditional approaches when I went into more traditional venues like Procter and Gamble after business school, where I had a bit of a, you know, act, not an activist, but I was probably more aggressive than others at raising my hand and saying, I'd like to be the person to kind of lead um, the future of marketing work. Or I, you know, I created the first digital marketing team. And, you know, most people would say, son, you know, wait 10 years until you get X stripe before you ever do that. And I just never, I always had a little bit of a, a student activist impatience with, you know, making it happen. But I also have always been captivated with the power of the internet to, you know, drive accessibility, to um, give consumers a greater voice. Um, that got me excited. In fact, one of my proudest accomplishments in the legislature was having my boss co-author a bill that opened up the internet to public data from, you know, we had to kind of take the, 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 the elect, um, the legislative files and make them available to anyone at no cost. And at that time there, it was all controlled by a lobbying organization that charged an arm and a leg. But that was kind of like, gosh, I open sourced state files. And that really, that, and then that's kind of the principle of the web. It's kind of like this open network that continues to reinvent itself. And that continues to power a lot of my enthusiasm. I had a big insight when I was at Proctor around the power of consumer feedback. And ironically, I was helping Proctor with a big crisis. They had had a product launch and there was like consumers that were going absolutely berserk um, and throwing a lot of, it was, it was around the launch of Olean. And uh, as you, if you may recall, there was just like a lot of uh, off color remarks about the side effects of Olean and Proctor didn't really know how to deal with it. And so that's where I first got my taste at kind of issues management from a big company perspective. But it reminded me that consumers online have an incredible voice and they can create these consumer cartels of opinion that can have massive consequence, both on the positive and the negative side. And that's what led me to leave one of the greatest jobs I've ever had uh, to start a company called Planet Feedback because I wanted to see whether I could, uh, you know, have a shot at, you know, value creation from scratch, creating my own uh, business. And we raised a ton of money and we created one of the first feedback portals on the web where we empowered consumers to give positive feedback, negative feedback questions to, to companies. We collected millions of pieces of data. Our business model was to monetize the data, but we also sold ASP software services to really big companies like Bank of America and Nokia, Mars. Um, and then that business model ultimately, kind you know, after the dot-com crash, 
if you had the word consumer next to your name, you know, you were like a pariah. So yeah, we had to reposition the business to be more of a B2B enterprise business. So we became a internet listening company. And, and that worked out pretty well. I think for a while we had about a 50% share of all the business helping companies to monitor at that time. It was, you know, Usenet news groups, you know, Google groups, it ultimately evolved into Twitter and Facebook, but I work with hundreds of companies helping them to tap into the online conversation to become better brand builders in that you could become a better brand builder by unpacking a great insight or unarticulated need or unmet need. We work with companies like Toyota on quality. They almost took Six Sigma thinking to the next level by factoring in all these um, complaints or bits of emotion from consumers. Um, work with Nike and, and how to, um, you know, what we learn about really kind of high performance, almost like the fusion of technology and sports by understanding like very serious runners. So it was an absolutely, it was one of the most fascinating jobs. And there are just so many different buyers to, to work with because it wasn't just, we, we were primarily selling to the CMO, a lot of post pre post campaign analysis, but we got into a lot of other areas. The area that I liked the most was the crisis piece. Um, I just think that's where when there's a big crisis, that's where companies are very motivated to act. You know, it's where they kind of throw the processes. They sort of say, it's got to happen now. It's not going to be like a long one. And, um, and I saw a lot of companies, I, Com Comcast was one of our biggest clients. I was always amazed at how they shifted their models so dramatically and progressively on the basis of a viral video on YouTube that really called them out for bad customer service or even their own employees. And those kind of inspired me from a, gosh, if you can package that for companies in a way where they really understand what's going on, they'll make better decisions. Anyway, so we sold that company to Nielsen. It was a bit of a roll up with other firms. And while I was in Nielsen, I started a consulting division. You know, we, we did a bit of a joint venture with McKinsey and, and then Nestle came calling after they had a fairly, how shall I say this drip, drip, diplomatically? They had a, um, a, t a teachable moment. That's a good, that's a diplomatic <laughs> a way to say it. A teachable moment. I got to make sure these, these podcasts don't get me in trouble. Um, related to supply chain where Greenpeace had raised a lot of visibility around the palm oil sourcing for all of the major companies, but they were particularly inventive and creative on how they brought that to consumers' attention vis-a-vis -vis their Facebook page and through viral videos. And we had some, you know, our, our inexperience, again, diplomatically stated, in social media earned us a lot of what I like to call spurn media, earned media gone negative, and that ultimately led to their creating the position that I had starting in 2011, global head of digital and social media. And what was interesting about the job is that it bridged between marketing and corporate communication, which I think is a really important bridge. What I love about the digital space is it does, it's forcing everybody to kind of rethink the silos. I mean, right now, Nestle is putting, I think, some very good progressive thinking into how marketing and sales has a lot more in common today in a world where everything's mapped across a consumer journey. You know, maybe those divisions. So when I started my job, there was a big merger, if you will, between 
the traditional brand building and the corporate communication, which I think is very important because if you're not thinking about trust 24 seven, then you're probably missing, you know, big, big opportunities. I'll pause right there. I know that was a long, a long setup, but I hope that was helpful. No, it's fascinating. It's hard not to get drawn in and just sit here and listen to this, you know, mini Ted talk on the history of Pete Blackshaw. So a couple of things that we talked about in the prep and you're, you're well known for this, but you know, you do have this new title that I don't really think I've heard <laughs> from anyone before where it's innovation, head of innovation and service models, digital innovation and service, digital model. innovation and service models. Um, but you also talked a lot about customer service and the fact that I think at Nestle, you've moved customer service in as a part of the marketing function versus it just being a cost center. And we were, I mean, you gave your talk yesterday at our event yeah. and it was all about concierge marketing and, you know, this new concept of like, yes, we've been talking about customer service forever, but, um, how it has such a direct tie to profitability yes. and such a direct tie to growth. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, the roots of this go back to my favorite class in business called, called service management, uh, professor Jim Heskett, um, who wrote a number of books about this, the service profit chain and the like even lured him to my, be on the, the board of my, 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 my planet feedback startup. But, the service profit chain maintained that service and profitability share a, um, a very, very close relationship. And to some extent, net promoter scores and the like, I think validate a lot of that. But, and I, and I do believe that as we enter in a world of e-commerce and a world where we're trying to build more online subscriptions and get first party data from consumers, I think the service principle is going to be incredibly important. The challenge in large organizations, and I wrote about this in my first book, Satisfied Customers Tell Three Friends, Angry Customers Tell 3000, is that the call center, the consumer service department is treated as the quote, neglected stepchild. It's non-strategic, it's cost center. If you really look at service interfaces, even today, what you see in the background is a logic that says, fewer consumers through the pipe, less time, um, you know, per consumer. Okay. And, and it's that whole efficiency principle, like get them out of the way when in fact we almost have to flip that on its head at a time when we're trying to figure out how to develop first party relationships, you should dramatically expand your access points to the consumer and a longer conversation might actually yield better outcomes. You know, you need to know where you, you know, where it's appropriate to talk live to a consumer versus, you know, service automation and the like. But one of the, you know, it's funny if I look back on my, you know, five years from now, if I look back on my career at Nestle and people say, what are you most proudest of? I'll probably surprise people and with probably what they consider the most boring thing. One of the things I'm most proudest of was reclassifying customer service from cost center to kind of a marketing investment. We call marketing investment PFME and that's where ad spend is and service before I got there was in a different bucket. And, and if you put it in the wrong bucket, it has a huge impact on how you think about staffing and putting people against it. And so we kind of we got accounting to kind of shift that. And I think it's had a very, very positive impact. We also rebranded consumer services to in consumer engagement services, which was our way of bridging the direct feedback flows, which is call center email with the indirect feedback flows, which is taking place in customer and in social media. And I do believe that 
the smart CMO of the future needs to think about those contact points almost agnostically. Like we don't care where the consumer is talking to us directly or indirectly. It all has to be part of a very consistent process. I do believe the stakes are really going up dramatically on that front and CMOs are going to be very, very challenged by the new expectations that are being set by contact points. So for example, much as we glorify wax poetic and get excited about chatbots, they are changing the expectations of consumers because chatbots respond, you know, whether they respond correctly or not, they're responding instantly. So suddenly the automation is making everyone look like they're in super slow-mo. And so if you're the CMO, you've got to really think about how those contact points um, are very, very consistent. I think Facebook is also raising the bar because you can visit any brand website. And the first thing you're going to see um, is, you know, Nescafe responds within two hours or Nespresso responds instantly. So suddenly you're going to see these these, it's almost like a public advertising. Are you a fast response brand or are you a slow response brand? And, you know, a couple years ago, we would high five ourselves if we could respond within three days. We'd like, oh my gosh, that's so much better than before. So this is where it's really hard. And this is what I would characterize as the, the unsexy, um, rarely covered in ad age essentials of the new marketing, which is how do we respond in a very smart, intelligent, real time, always on way with today's empowered consumers. And moreover, per the conversation we had yesterday, how do we turn that into a marketing opportunity? Because well, it's getting harder to reach consumers. It is, right? Because but we, if they're coming at you, right. that's your opportunity. Right. And most of us are unprepared. Well, and so that is something that I want to talk about because you went further than just, you know, let's really do great customer service. It was customer service 3.0 concierge marketing. And if anyone thinks about what a good concierge is, it's someone that really hates exactly they're curious about your needs. They're they great may curator know you from previous visits. Right. And so right. they're three steps ahead. I know you want the water bottle at, at 5 PM. They may know that you tried another, you know, the Thai restaurant before. So then now they're going to recommend the other one. Um, they're thoughtful. They think ahead for you. And that's kind of the metaphor for branding. And it's a simple one. And to some extent, it's been a process of trial and error because I've tried a lot of different approaches to kind of shake marketers and say, customer service is important. And so now I feel like I finally found the, the metaphor. Um, although I've been told I don't always pronounce the word correctly. Concierge, concierge, <laughs> yeah, you know, know exactly. tomato, tomato. My boss reminds me of that every once in a while. But, um, but yeah, so, but but everyone can relate to that. And there's a whole, you know, there's, there's great schools in the Swiss Hills on how to become a great service rep from a hotel. And I think we need simple metaphors to drive consumer centric behavior. And as I've reflected on in my new role, digital innovation and service <coughs> models, we're doing a lot of work with voice activation. We did a big pilot with Alexa on recipes. We're doing work with chatbots connected kitchen. But as I helicoptered up and reflected on that, I was saying, wow, it's all coming down to the same thing, like giving advice to consumers. It all borrows from that concierge mindset of how can I help you? In fact, in some respects, it goes back to the early days of, remember in the early days of digital, we talked about interactivity. I actually missed that word. I think we threw that word away too early because, and I do think people had it right in that there is an interaction. Um, 
in digital that you simply could not get through other means. And we kind of threw it away as we got really excited about ad targeting and you know the ability to precisely target consumers. And that's still very, very important. But I'm convinced the secret sauce is still that interactivity. And the unique opportunity within that secret sauce is that we can do more of it at scale if we understand how to leverage these new technologies. That's where I think AI is so interesting, right? I mean, AI helps us make more intelligent assumptions about what the consumer may want. And, but, and you have to feed, you have to, you have to build it properly. In fact, every time someone approaches me and says, I want to do something cool with service models, I always ask them that question I asked yesterday, which is like, do you know the top five questions that consumers ask of your brand? Do you know the top five complaints? Most people don't. But if you want to build a great AI engine, you got to start with that. And companies have a lot of advantage. I mean, most companies have massive call center databases. It's the ultimate database of intent, the database of curiosity. We need to come up with a better term for that. How far away are we from an AI perspective and really having it? I mean, I know a lot of chatbots, to your point, it's a great tip of the spear, but until they get more intelligent, and then to your point with the whole concierge idea of a lot of times it takes a human being and a lot of times they have notes that they've written down and every time they pull up your record, it's like, ah, Pete likes X, yeah. Y, and Z. But, you know, when when is that really going to start to become meaningful? I think it's meaningful? moving pretty fast. I mean, I've been a pretty compulsive user of Alexa, Google Home slash Assistant. You know, they're all getting smart really fast. I'm, you know, and they, they, they learn very quickly. And, uh, you know, so I think we've got a ways to go. But I think that if brand builders approach it with the right iteration approach, they'll increase the odds of success. There's a lot of watch outs. I mean, there's nothing worse than automation cranking out the wrong answer. And we've made some, we've had some teachable moments. Like we did, you know, we were in a, we came up with a, one of our brands, Purina, came up with a chat bot that was designed to help consumers make a, a pet choice. I think it was sponsored by Pet Finder, which we own. And what we learned is that anytime you have a chatbot, even if your goal is X, consumers always default to basic customer service questions. And we weren't ready for that. And so no matter what your goal is, consumers will always ask those very, very predictable questions. And this is where you have to translate that knowledge base into those, those models. I think um, we also need to be very wary about spam. You know, I've even told uh, David Marcus, who is leading all of that, chatbot work for Facebook to be very wary of marketers um, spoiling the commons. You know, you know, we just keep, you know, there's so many instances where we just have the same environmental issues, so to speak, where we just kind of befoul the landscape. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of spam that's starting to pop up from that area. You kind of think it's a useful utility and you go to your Facebook page and there's all these, you know, these, these bot responses bubbling up and it's a big annoyance. It kind of makes you want to download a bot blocker or something. So we got to be careful about that. And I, I, I really hope brand builders learn lessons from previous mistakes because we have gone through a lot of waves where consumers have just revolted in a very, very big way. You know, we saw even in 2000, I mean, the number of pop-up blockers were just mind boggling. It's right. amazing. Well, and, and getting, a, it, getting it more now. Yeah. We're still having this, the same debate. Right. I remember writing letters to Bob Leodis from the ANA saying, dude, you've got to get in front of this issue. It, you will pay the price down the line. 
you know, and, and now we have these debates, like it just, we just discovered it. So what I love about the concierge economy is that nobody's ever heard of a consumer downloading a service blocker. It's the ultimate trust insurance. They're coming at us. They're giving us very explicit um, permission. Aaron, I need your advice. Right, <laughs> right. engage me, interact yeah. with me. I need your advice. I don't know how to use your product. Yes. I need some inspiration on how to use it. This is our moment, my friends. If we do not take advantage of this, we're losers. This is, this is our moment. And we may find that this is a lower cost form of customer acquisition. Think of all the marketers that, you know, it's going to cost me $100 to acquire a consumer in my email database and they'll send out, you know, a gazillion ad impressions. They'll maybe get 1% um, click through rate. And it's just, you know, you think about it and then now you've got all these consumers that want to ask you, you know, questions and you're going to get positive feedback. The big insight I learned from Planet Feedback was that if you remove the friction, the amount of positive feedback you get will skyrocket. And data, right? It, the amount of things that people well, will tell the, you. The, the data goes hand in hand. If the consumers are coming at you, if you remove the friction, your odds of getting the data you want will go up. But I would suggest consumer that we resist, we resist the temptation to just talk about getting data from consumers. We want to hear their voice. We want to dignify their voice. If you do that well, you will get the data. But you have to, it's a bargain. It's a covenant. It's a value exchange. And we have to think really, really hard about that. And we have to ask ourselves some really hard questions about are we truly consumer centric in the way we do that? Can we do a better job with privacy statements? Is it really fair to the consumers to like force them to bring out a magnifying glass? Can we simplify it? Can we have the Pinterest version of privacy statements? Um, how do we educate them? How do we make it easy to opt out? You know, uh, one, one of my, the other proudest accomplishment is, um, I was very involved with the Consumer Goods Forum. We focus on something called in consumer engagement principles, which we got a lot of companies to sign up for. It wasn't too prescriptive, but the principles were spot on that we have to help consumer. We have to educate consumers better about what their, you know, how data is used. Uh, we need to make it really simple for them to opt out. We even need to make sure that they know in social media that it needs to be disclosed. We have to commit that because there's a lot of, as we learned with Twitter just a couple weeks ago in that cover story in the New York Times, <laughs> a lot of, lot of issues with followers being bought and the like. But all of this to me suggests that, you know, trust is going to be the seminal issue that we have to deal with. And the good news is that trust has always been the currency of effective advertising. So those who make the proper investment and do it right we'll see huge rewards. Those that don't, I fear, or maybe I don't fear, maybe I hope, will be kind of weeded out. So that's a great note to end that piece on. You mentioned earlier, California boy, spent some time in Cambridge, <laughs> Mass. You live in Switzerland now. Yeah. What's that like? You know, it's great. I, um, you know, I love, uh, it's just, it's kind of been an experience of a lifetime. Um, I never expected to be here as long as I am, but I, you miss your you know, Cabernets, though. Yeah, no, no, but I, but I love the job. I love the people. I didn't know a lot about Nestle when I got there, but it's just an absolutely fabulous company with uh, just a great set of brands and a great heritage. You know, it's 150 years old. Um, I learned a lot about our founder, Henry Nestle, who uh, 
you know, kind of uh, got the business going locally in Veve. But as a life stage, as lifestyle, it's been incredible. And I've come to appreciate a lot of things. I've been thinking about, do I write an, I, I was thinking about writing another book, like 10 things I've learned from the Swiss. Because there are some, you know, yes, people talk about the Swiss are very reserved and shy. And some of that plays out in, you know, like Nestle is not, um, unlike other companies I work for, you know, they don't dance on stage. They don't, you know, they don't kind of shout from the mountaintop. They kind of hope that their good actions will be discovered. I think I worry sometimes they, they may not always get the credit they deserve and sometimes a high scrutiny social media environment, but it is, I do think it's kind of reflective of that, of in part of that, of that Swiss culture. And there's a part of that I really, really respect, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit of a walk the talk thing. Um, very strong kind of environmentalism in the region. I mean, the, you know, the number one family activity is like a recycling center and like everything is recycled. I mean, everything. And it's really, it's like the social Safeway. You know, you go to the recycling center and it's really, it's quite the, uh, quite the exercise, but they take it very seriously. In fact, you have to, um, you have to buy garbage bags. Okay. And you have to, I think they cost like $2. You know, and so it's a great incentive for you to recycle everything because you're like, oh my gosh, every time I fill up that blue, that blue bag with the stamp, I'm going to have to get um, deduct two dollars from the the kid's college account, and um, and it's good. And of course, if you violate that, boy, you are in really really big trouble. Um, but it's absolutely spectacular, um, and for me, it's a bit emotional because the last gift that my father gave me before he passed away was a beautiful black and white photo he took of the Matterhorn in 1960. He, uh, you know, he was in World War II and on his GI Bill, he kind of had a chance to travel around Europe and he really kind of, Europe really caught his, um, not just Europe, skiing in the Alps, you know, for a guy that didn't have a lot of money growing up, that was one of his great achievements. So he kind of left me with that. And I kind of regret the fact that he died before I moved out to Switzerland, but I really love the mountains and I love spending time with my kids. Um, much as I love LA, I don't miss, you know, the, you know, literally it takes me five minutes to get to the job. Um, and, uh, and one thing that I've loved is, um, yeah, spending time with my kids and telling stories with my kids. We actually produce videos for every time we go out skiing and it's actually, it's actually sharpened my digital skills because, you know, I've learned that you have to get it down to two minutes. You have to have a good, you might have to have a ski crash at the very front. In fact, my first Ted talk was all about um, what I called the work-life advantage. And I talked about how a lot of my best digital skills have come from a lot of these uh, personal insights. And um, now I'm learning so much from my kids about the world of gamification and influencers. I mean, I'm feeling quite humble and small at times, but it's really important to kind of leverage those, uh, those um, the young people to you know keep keep your right. edge well they live in it right and they're content creators and you know to your point they live in the gamification world it's one reason why you know i have a uh, a, a digital leadership program at nestle that i absolutely love and we bring in you know somewhere between 12 and 18 high potential leaders from across our markets to work at nestle at the, at the global headquarters for eight months at a time and it's a full immersion in training, it's hands-on hackathons, it's design thinking. Um, we've had luminaries like, you know, W2O's Bob Pearson come in and talk to them. And who may or may not be in the room with us right now. So but, but the his young, ears don't have but to you burn know, what virtually. I love, what I love about the young generation, it's very much like the ankle biters out there. They see possibilities where big companies see limitations. 
That's what I love about startup culture. You know, every challenge is an opportunity. Every, you know, you cannot have the money. I will find a solution. You know, and I love that spirit. And people that are reared in the digital world, they see possibilities. And so many companies are under leveraged in terms of what they're capable of doing. And yet they're sitting on these absolutely fabulous brands that mean so much more to consumers than they realize. And so, you know, I work with these young leaders to help them to, you know, shake up the company a bit, but also empower them to turn their vision into real action. And it's been incredibly satisfying. And I suspect, you know, I have a feeling in my next job, I'll probably be working for one of these, these, uh, these, these, uh, Young leaders Young that have gone through yes. the program. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So two last questions to bring us home. One is I like to ask everyone business book or book for pleasure that you've read over the last year that you'd like to share with the readers. Well, I've been rereading a lot of stuff with my kids lately. We just started Catcher in the Rye and I forgot what a great. <laughs> One of the best actually. Uh, I just yeah. forgot what a great, you know, it's, you squirm a little bit because, you know, Holden's got quite the mouth, but it's just. It's so brilliantly written. We just, you know, I'm really into my road trips when we go skiing. In fact, those are, that could be another book, road trip. You know, the, the, pres- the priceless moments when you're taking kids, you know, from A to B and what you do in that experience. And we've been group reading um, Catcher in the Rye. And, yeah, it's just, it's classic. We did the same thing with Lord of the Flies. And maybe that was a little bit too early for my kids to read. But um, on the business side, I was really moved by, Tim Wu's book about the um, the uh, the advertising industry that just came out, and I think it's a uh, um, what's it called, the Merchant. It, but it's I've actually started writing a review for it, maybe for Ad Age. But he does such a good job of diagnosing our industry all the way back to you know the 1920s, and he really takes us to this critical inflection point in the history of the web where we made a really made a choice between the subscription model and the free space and he raises some really really hard questions about did we make the right choice by going on the free side given all these challenges that we're going through but it's one of the more thoughtful the attention commentaries yeah the attention merchants and it's it's a long slog but if you're passionate about brand building and you're scratching your head about all these complicated issues. It's a really, really good read. Now on the non visual side, I've really become addicted to podcasts. So one reason why I'm very honored to be part of this, but uh, uh, not only do I love planet money, but I'm, I li- I've, I've listened with my kids to almost every single episode of how I built this. And I think it's such a great collective journey for kind of parents and kids to hear the stories about people that have created things both on the business or the nonprofit side and and the process of iteration because very rarely when you hear the story about um you know uh whether it's howard schultz or the guy who started five guys uh you know the plan never goes according to plan it's you know it's but you learn as you go you pick up new data you kind of uh and there's always a lot of drama drama there's you know you know, sometimes the businesses crash and you have to reinvent them, but it's great storytelling. And I've really, I think, um, Guy Raz does a brilliant job on that front. And I've really rediscovered the, the joy of podcasting. I'm really into, if you ask me the areas that I'm really passionate about moving forward, 
um, experiential storytelling and I would put AR VR in that bucket. And then I'm trying to come up with the right term for this, but the placeholder term is multi-sensory branding. And that I would say is the kind of the, the kind of the, the, the podcast world, the Alexa world, um, even the Spotify world, so much of what we're experiencing today is, is audio. And, you know, some of it will just, we may have to dust off old lessons from the radio days, but it's deeper than that. But those are the areas that I'm really interested in trying to figure out and trying to figure out where we I might be able to get some um, competitive advantage for Nestle. It's also making me wonder, boy, maybe this is my next startup, because I do think this is an area that is really ripe for exploratory. Right. So good segue with Spotify. Yeah. Question I always like to ask is you're stuck on a deserted island or maybe in the mountains <laughs> in the Matterhorn. Uh, you can take one album with you, which album and why, and I think you're going to cheat and use a uh, a cool alternative playlist was your well, choice. Well, I joke with you that I'm almost embarrassed to admit that it would probably would be like the Pet Shop Boys top kit hits. But that's no, how, that's where your quote is going to be. It's going to be I the Pet exactly. Shop Boys. No, no, right? no, no. no. I, uh, I really like the, uh, the indie playlist on um, Spotify, and I refresh them all the time, and it sets the mood. It gives me energy. It's a caffeine substitute, and so it probably would be – you know, I would probably look at the data and say, what is the most, uh, what are the songs that I played the most? And I would kind of put those on the, uh, um, you know, put those on the list. And we're always surprised when we look at the actual data. It's the same thing when I look at my Alexa data. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe setting the clock was the number one activity. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's probably what I'd bring to the, hopefully I'd bring my kids and my wife and, you know, stuff like that. So oh, that'd be nice. Well, um, this is Aaron Strout, CMO, W2O Group, the host of the What's to Know podcast show. Um, we're podcasting live at South by Southwest, and I've just spent uh, a very enjoyable uh, last half hour or so with Pete Blackshaw, who's the global head of digital innovation and service models at Nestle, um, pioneer in the space. True honor to have you. So thank you, Pete. Thank you very much. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whoogroup.com slash what to know.